Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. So the wearing of masks should be you take care of me and I take care of you and not I'm in a vacuum, I'm going to do what I want to do. We've got to have that societal responsibility because we're all in this together, Alan. This is not something that 25 or 30% of the people can do what they want to do and think they're not negatively impacting the rest of society. You are. You may not realize you are, but you are. This hour-long special of Clear and Vivid is a recording of a conversation I had with my old friend Anthony Fauci during a live-streamed event hosted by Smithsonian Associates on September 23, 2020. It was some six months after he'd been my guest on the show back in early March, just as the awful reality of the COVID-19 pandemic was becoming apparent, and 10 days before we learned of President Trump's diagnosis. I talked with Dr. Fauci about what we've learned about the coronavirus that makes it so deadly and what the prospects are for beating it back. Dr. Fauci, my hero, I'm so glad to see you again. Alan, it's a great pleasure to be with you again. I'm, I was looking forward to this. I was just, I just came back from the White House where we had a task force meeting and I said, now let me go to something that's really going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I want, I, you know, I had, I had wanted to ask you all kinds of very forward-looking questions about the future because we hear about the present so much. But there are a couple of things that are only a few hours old that I think I really need to ask you about. Okay. One, one is uh, just a couple of hours ago, the Washington Post uh, reported on a study that showed that there are a lot of mutations happening on COVID-19. And they reminded us of the big, the big mutation, I think before it left China, where it mutated a couple of hundred times and one of them made it more infectious, if I have that right. Right. But now they don't know. There was some, in the second wave that hit Houston, they found a couple of hundred more mutations, I think, that no one seems to be clear about whether one or two of those mutations could be really a serious problem for us. You've been so busy all day, you probably haven't been up on this yet. You know, Alan, I, I have not seen that yet, but I uh, just so that our, our audience could get a feel for the perspective of that. 
this is an RNA virus, and RNA viruses mutate frequently. Almost always a mutation doesn't have a functional consequence, but sometimes it does. As you had mentioned, there was a mutation at the amino acid number 614 that took place that made it uh, looking like that it makes it bind better and to the receptors, which means it likely will transmit better and maybe even replicate better. There hasn't been any indication that that's had any impact in the real world because what they did is that they tested it in an in vitro situation. So what scientists will do now, Alan, will take a look at each of those and subject them to the kind of assays to maybe give a hint, is this something that's a little bit different? Does it make it more or less resistant to some of the drugs that we have? Does it make it more or less resistant to some of the antibodies that are induced by vaccines? Generally, my experience is that as you go along and get more and more infections, if anything, the virus tends to be less virulent rather than more virulent. But that's just experience. You've got to just get the data and look at it now. So you pay close attention to it, Alan, but you don't necessarily get concerned by the fact that there are mutations because RNA viruses really like to mutate. My guess is the vast majority of the mutations are um, trivial to, for as far as we're concerned. Exactly. But what I wonder is the more uh, infections that occur because people are not following your guidelines, it seems to me that the more Petri dishes, human Petri dishes we're making available to the virus to mutate in and giving it more of an opportunity to come up with a mutation that's dangerous. Is this, is this a reason to yeah. double down on the guidelines? Oh, absolutely. You nailed it, Alan. That's absolutely the case. You, whenever you give a virus the opportunity to replicate, and it replicates in humans, uh, when you give it an opportunity to replicate, the more humans that get infected, the more it replicates, the more it replicates, the more it develops mutations. Even though, as you, as you and I both say, the overwhelming majority of the mutations are meaningless in the sense that they don't have a functional impact. But the fact is, if you just keep allowing it to mutate, it could mutate into something that's worse. Another good reason why we should try to avoid the transmission and acquisition of infection, even in situations, and this is usually among young people who understandably and innocently feel, well, you know, you look at the statistics and young people who get infected generally don't have a significant impact on their health. They either have no symptoms or mild symptoms. You should not be swayed by that because what you're doing, and I think it goes directly to what you suggested, Alan, is that by getting infected, even though you don't have any symptoms, you are propagating the outbreak. You are allowing the outbreak to continue because the chances are that you will inadvertently or innocently, even if you have no symptoms at all, infect someone else, which will then propagate the outbreak to infect someone else. And then sooner or later, a vulnerable person, an elderly person like myself or someone or with an underlying, oh, you, well, you, you, you look young, <laughs> but people who have an underlying condition 
are fact of those that are going to suffer from this. So that's the reason why very often you'll hear me in some respects pleading with people to have not only the responsibility to yourself, but also a social and, and, and societal responsibility to not be part of the problem. And it's not only young people who don't think of others. There are people who say openly, I've seen them interviewed on television saying, uh, I have a right to take care of my health the way I want to. And I don't have to, if I don't worry about it, I'm not going to worry about it. But in fact, I was just reading the CDC's analysis, the percentage of transmission occurring prior to the onset of symptoms. They put it at 30%, maybe even 50%. Let's say it's in the between. Let's say it's 40%. Does that mean, am I right, that 40% of the people walking around who seem safe may not be? Well, we've learned some startling things, Alan, about this. And that's one of the issues as the weeks and months go by, you learn more and more. And that's the reason why we all have to be humble enough and flexible enough to know that we need to change our perspective and sometimes our recommendations based on the science that's available at a given time. We know that about 40 to 45% of people who get infected don't have any symptoms. And we know that clearly people who don't have symptoms can transmit the virus. Add that to what you were saying, which is true, that people who are pre-symptomatic, namely they ultimately will get symptoms, but they don't have it yet. They are eminently capable of transmitting the virus. In fact, there are studies that show that as you get into the disease, multiple days of symptomatology, the level of virus in your upper airway goes down, even though you're sick and could be seriously ill. So there's a lot of people around who think because they feel okay that they're not harming anybody. You know, we don't want to scare people, but when we talk about the four or five public health measures that we all should abide by, universal wearing of masks, avoiding crowds, keep physical distance, washing your hands as often as you possibly can, they seem very simple, but you wear a mask for two reasons. One, because you should assume that maybe you're one of those asymptomatic people who are infected, are never going to get any symptoms, but you might be, as I say, innocently and inadvertently and unintentionally infecting someone else. On the other hand, it also can protect you to some extent from someone who is infected and don't know they know it. So the wearing of masks should be, you take care of me and I take care of you, and not, I'm in a vacuum, I'm going to do what I want to do. We've got to have that societal responsibility because we're all in this together, Alan. This is not something that 25 or 30% of the people can do what they want to do and think they're not negatively impacting the rest of society. You are. You may not realize you are, but you are. I'm so, so glad to hear you make that point so emphatically. I'm very, I try to be very careful. And sometimes friends who also seem to be trying to be careful will say to me, well, why aren't you, are you, are you going overboard here wearing that mask right now? And I say, I, I, I say, I'm doing it for you. I don't know if I'm sick or not. Exactly. 
You know, and it's very interesting because some people who don't fully, and, and again, I, I don't want to be pejorative or blaming, but some people who don't really understand what exactly what you said, which is so true, uh, Alan, is that uh, it, people sometimes get angry. Why do you have a mask? Take that mask off. You know, like a mask <laughs> is a symbol. I mean, yeah. the answer should be, I'm wearing a mask because I care about you. That's the reason why I'm wearing it. Yeah, that may not occur to some people because the only reason they'd wear it is to take care of themselves. Right. We have to get back to that idea that we had at other national crises like World War II when everybody was pulling together and there were inconveniences, harder, sharper inconveniences in many cases than we have now. Right. But people put up with it because they they knew they were in it together. And when I, I just hope we can get that sense back again. Uh, the uh, the other thing that happened this morning was your exchange with Rand Paul, where yeah, that's that's the impression I got. You had a very spirited and uh, emphatic yeah. response to him, and what surprised me was he was attempting to quote data that showed that simple measures like crowd control and sometimes a lockdown. He seemed to have, seemed to feel he had data that contradicted what most scientists or all the scientists are saying. And it was, to me, an odd thing because he, he said, when he said, look at the data, that's what your job is. That's your lifetime's work is to look at the data. You offered to sit down with him privately and go over the details with him. Did he take you up on that? No, not yet. You know, I, I, I have nothing against uh, Senator Paul. I have, a, a, you know, respect for him. He's the United States Senator. I have respect for him as an individual, and I have respect for the United States Senate. But what he was saying, you know, in some respects can be correct in a certain situation, but he didn't look at the totality of the data. For example, he is under the impression, as some are, just, you know, there's nothing you can do about this outbreak. Sooner or later, you know, everybody's going to get infected who's going to get infected. You know, that is 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 really not a good way to look at it because if you wound up letting everybody get infected and let it run its course, what you have to appreciate is that there are many people in society. They say, well, let's just protect the vulnerable, you know, the the the, the nursing homes and things like that. But if you look at in society, what percentage of people have underlying conditions that predispose them? If you were going to not try to blunt the infection, there would be so many, many more deaths, Alan. The other point that he made was he said, Sweden, let that happen. They said, just, you know, don't close down society. Um, just let let it happen and you'll see. And they had less deaths than us. Well, you can't compare Sweden with the United States. You know who you want to compare Sweden to? The other Scandinavian countries. And when you compare Sweden to the other Scandinavian countries, they have many more proportional debts than the others. So, you, you know, it, 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 it's sort of selected cherry picking of data that sometimes can give the wrong impression. So anyway, uh, I didn't like to have that confrontation. I don't like to have that kind of interaction because, like I said, I have a great deal of respect for the hearing, for the Senate, and even for Dr. Paul. So hopefully uh, uh, we can reconcile this at some time. I admire your, your navigating the shoals of 
<laughs> of opinion replacing science occasionally. And, and yeah. it's, it must be really tough for you because you've devoted your life to being precise and accurate about right about all of this, about everything scientific that you study. What about vaccines? How will we know? How will I know? How will you know? When you start taking a vaccine, I'm going to start taking the same one. Right. So uh, I don't know how you're going to know that. Okay. That's a good question. So I, what we were trying to articulate, and I think we, we did it pretty well because it was a combination of myself and the commissioner of FDA uh, and the assistant secretary for health and the director of the CDC that were at the hearing. And they asked the appropriate question that you're asking, Alan, is that um, how would we know if it's safe and effective? Uh, could it possibly be that political motivation will come in and make an end run and say, hey, it's safe and effective in order to get it out quickly mm -hmm. and early? Well, it doesn't work that way because every single vaccine trial has what's called an independent data and safety monitoring board who is mm -hmm. not beholden to the president, is not beholden to the FDA, is not beholden to the company, or even to me, the person who is involved in the vaccine trial. What they do is that they intermittently monitor the infections in the trial so that at predetermined points, they'll look at the data and they could make one of a few determinations. They could look at the data and say, no, we don't have enough data to make any determination, continue the study. The issue that's important that everyone needs to appreciate, Alan, that the only one that sees the data is the unblinded statistician on the data and safety monitoring board. So nobody can peek at the data and yeah. make a prediction. So they will say either, we don't have enough data to keep the study going, or they may look and say, oh my goodness, there are more infections in the vaccine group than in the placebo. We better stop this study because of safety. Or they may look at the data and say, you know, you have enough data that you've passed and reached the predetermined endpoints that indicate efficacy. So you can now stop the study and go through the process of applying either for an emergency use authorization or hopefully a BLA, which stands for biological license application. That means the company then applies to the FDA and says, here is the data from this independent data and safety monitoring board. They're the ones that interpret it. Give it to the FDA. Then the FDA's core professional scientists independently look at the data, and then they present it to their advisory committee. That is an advisory committee that, again, is independent. And all of those data, Alan, will ultimately become public so that even other scientists like myself and my colleagues that do this all the time will be able to look at the data and determine if that really is the right decision. The fact is, we do trust the FDA professionals. We trust the FDA commissioner. But as they say, trust, but cut the cards. <laughs> the fact is, <laughs> we're going to see the data. That's the point, Alan. We're going to see the data. It's going to be transparent. Speaking of cutting the cards, 
I just have a little tiny question. Who appoints this independent board? Oh, the independent board is is appointed by us, the scientists, the ones who are running the trial. So I picked the chair of that board, a person who's extremely experienced in analyzing data from trials. And then he makes suggestions about people who should be on. You have uh, statisticians, you have clinicians, you have vaccinologists, you have ethicists, you have a whole bunch of people who are beholden to nothing but the data. Let me ask you a question that also came up today that I, I need more clarification on, and it's herd immunity. Can you tell me in simple uh, words what herd immunity is? Okay. If we were to achieve it, how would we achieve it? And are we, are, we in, are we in any position to say we have herd immunity in New York now? Okay. So herd immunity, by definition, means that when a certain percentage of the population is immune or protected against infection, namely they're either vaccinated and protected or they've already been infected and now have protection. When you get a certain proportion of the population that is immune, the virus finds a great deal of difficulty in finding a susceptible person. And when the virus, you know, metaphorically, as it were, has difficulty finding the susceptible person, then the so-called herd of protected people protect the vulnerables who either can't get vaccinated or were not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You know, it goes back to the metaphor when you look at a herd, let's say wildebeests or what have you, you got a couple of babies in there who can't protect themselves. They're vulnerable. When the lions and the others come, they want to get to that. The herd protects them. So it's the protection of the vulnerable by the herd. So it sounds like some important percentage of the herd needs to be uh, immune Exactly. Through exactly. one way or another, either they come in with immunity or they get right. immunity by having yeah. the disease. Right. And here is the problem. Here's the problem with the idea of saying, let everybody get infected and then you'll get herd immunity. Well, the fact is right now, the CDC and Dr. Redfield reported this at the hearing, did a survey, a survey to find out in representative places throughout the United States, what percentage of the population is essentially immune because they have existing antibodies. Mm -hmm. So we estimate, and we don't know for sure, but we're estimating that herd immunity for this infection would be likely somewhere around 70, 75%. Mm -hmm. The mean or the average in the country right now is somewhere around two to 3%. Some well, places like New York City are around 20 to 25%. So we're nowhere near herd immunity yet. So the idea that we can feel with impunity that there's enough people who got infected, we're not there yet. We wanna get there by vaccination not by getting so many people infected. Because when you do, even a certain percentage 
many of them have no serious consequences from infection. There are still the vulnerables in the population, the people with the underlying conditions, the people with diabetes, obesity, hypertension, who are on chemotherapy for a variety of diseases, and the elderly, whose immune system we know is almost never as good as it was when you were younger. So we need to watch out for those people because A, they're important, and B, they, they, they comprise a reasonably significant part of our population. Do we have evidence yet to know with some certainty how immune you get from having had the disease? You get immune, does it last that immunity? What's the story? Here's an area where I always say we can talk about projections of likelihood, but we don't have enough data right now to make definitive statements. But let me tell you what we do know, and perhaps we can extrapolate that. We do know that coronaviruses in general, when you get infected with coronaviruses, the immunity you get can last anywhere from weeks to months to maybe a year or more. It is not like measles, where when you get infected, you have lifelong immunity. So when you use as a model, Alan, the common cold coronaviruses, most people don't appreciate, they hear the word coronavirus, they think this is the first we've ever had any experience with a coronavirus. It's not. There are four coronaviruses that account for about 15 to 30 percent of all the common colds that you and I get repetitively throughout our lives in the winter, which means that getting infected does not give you lifelong immunity. So it is conceivable that getting infected with this particular coronavirus will not give you prolonged immunity. And that's the reason why we could say we don't know now if you get an antibody test, whether that's neutralizing antibody that's going to protect you, or if you wait six months, the antibodies are going to go away and you will be susceptible to reinfection. These are all conjectures. We don't know this. The only thing we can say is that if it acts like the common cold coronavirus, it's likely that we might have to, for example, with vaccines, we may need to boost people intermittently. That's not necessarily bad news. There are a number of vaccines that intermittently we need to reboost, like tetanus and others. But what we know about these viruses is that in general, they do not induce very long-lasting, lifelong immunity. You just make me think of something I've wondered. This is the season for us to go get a flu shot. Does that put us at any increased risk for the COVID virus? Good question. And I'm glad we, we got into that because we're entering into the flu season right now. So one thing that would really be very difficult if you had the confluence of two respiratory-borne illnesses that start off with similar symptomatology. That would be very confusing to people. And, you know, if you think it's difficult right now with testing and contact tracing and things, you don't want that. Also, if you happen to get infected with both of them at the same time, it could be very dangerous to your health. So here's what we recommend, that virtually everybody, literally anybody six months of age or older, 
should get vaccinated with the flu vaccine so that you could hopefully diminish any impact that flu would have as we go into the fall. And right now, we still average about 40,000 cases of COVID a day. So as we get into the flu season and as we get into the winter and people stay indoors, we're going to be challenged to get those numbers down. And that's what I talk about literally every day to the public, Alan. One of the things that's possibly good news, and I'll just mention this, and why it's yet again, as you mentioned a few moments ago, yet again, so important to wear masks, do social distancing, and avoid crowds, is that in the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia, South Africa, and Argentina, but particularly Australia, whose flu season is April to the end of August, they wore masks, did physical distancing, avoided crowds because of COVID. And when they went through their flu season, they had the lowest flu season in their memory. So you get two for the price of one, Alan. If you do those public health things, not only would you protect yourself from getting SARS coronavirus too, but you can protect yourself from getting influenza. Right. The notion of what happens after you fight off the infection, this idea of continuing to have symptoms sometimes for months, all kinds of symptoms, symptoms uh, when, with your brain, with uh, keep holding your attention for, long, for a very long time, respiratory problems, all kinds of things. Is that something that we just came to realize lately? We are finding that out now because we're developing large studies of people who are post-COVID-19. And mm -hmm. the individuals who get this post-COVID, it's called long haulers, they call themselves. Namely, they're in it for the long haul because they may clear the virus, but weeks, if not months, they have fatigue, muscle aches, sometimes fever, and what they refer to as brain fog or difficulty in concentrating. Now, there are enough of those to realize that that's a real, real syndrome. The mm. other thing that you learn as you get more experience, there have been a couple of papers that have come out recently of people who've actually completely recovered virologically from COVID-19, who upon following them with MRI, magnetic resonance imaging techniques, were found to have evidence of inflammation in the heart. And the reason this is important is that, again, as you learn more and more about the disease, you've got to keep your antennas up because it's conceivable that those people six months or a year from now may have an unusually high number of arrhythmias, may have an increased incidence of a heart attack, or may develop a cardiomyopathy. I hope the, the, the inflammation disappears and there's no residua. But you got to keep your eye out on things like that. And that's the reason why you continually learn. And as you learn more, you can change your perception of what the impact of a disease is. You've always got to keep an open mind and not think at any given time that you know everything about the disease, because you don't. We're taking a brief pause in our conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. And when we come back, 
I ask him how he's changed his own protective habits since we first talked in March. He tells me why he no longer has the scratchy voice he had back then, and we take some very perceptive questions from the audience listening to our conversation as it was live-streamed by the Smithsonian Associates right after this. We have some exciting news for clear and vivid listeners, especially those who enjoy our conversations with scientists. Starting on Thursday, October 15th, that's just two days after this episode of Clear and Vivid is published, we're producing a new weekly series called Science Clear and Vivid, sponsored by the Kavli Foundation. In this special series, I talk with some of the leading figures shaping science in the United States, focusing on how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. So check it out. Science Clear and Vivid every Thursday for the next 10 weeks. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci. So let me ask you a somewhat personal question, but it would be of help to all of us. As you've learned more, all the various things you've learned since, since we talked first about this March 5th, have you changed any of your own protective habits at all? Um, yes, uh, I think subconsciously I have, um, I am as, as difficult as this is, but I'm a little bit unusual because of the nature of my, my job, uh, Alan, I, I, I don't have much time for myself to do anything else than spend, you know, most of the day working on vaccines and therapies and then other parts of the day at the White House and at hearings. I'm much more attuned to the ability of this virus to very efficiently spread. So I'm very compulsive about putting a mask and keeping a mask on when I'm out. Um, I don't make it so that it completely disrupts your life. My one, besides the company of my wife, my children are adult, they're no longer in the house, but besides the wonderful company of my wife, my, my only real other pleasure is 
going on a power walk. I used to run, but I'm getting a little achy to do that now. But when I go out and, and run, people ask, you know, do you wear a mask when you're out on a trail at the CNO Canal and uh, near the Potomac and there's nobody within 400 yards? I, I put the mask under my chin. But when I passed someone and or I talked to someone who says, hello, how are you? Thank you for what you're doing. That mask goes on. And I'm very, very careful about that. And I don't congregate with groups. The most, the thing that I have done much more compulsively now is that, uh, you know, I order out because I want to keep the, the solvency of the restaurants in my neighborhood. So I don't go to the restaurant, but I do takeout. And I never have any more than two or three or so people besides my wife and I doing something outdoors uh, such as, you know, sharing a meal and making sure you're six to 10 feet apart. I would say the difference now, the realization that something we thought before, but we know now, Alan, that there's a substantial proportion of people who are capable of transmitting infection who are without symptoms. So even though somebody looks healthy and you really want to say, God, I haven't seen you so long, give me a hug, Ah, ah, ah. mask on. Hello. How are you? Nice to see you. <laughs> there are all kinds of gestures now that imply a hug. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I was rabid in the beginning about being careful about everything. And I, and I still am very strict. But my friends were laughing at me because they'd say, did you read that article in the paper today? And I say, no, I let the paper air out for two or three days. <laughs> So the news is no longer news for you. It's all old news. You pick up objects like when you go to the to the restaurant and you take out the 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 plastic container has been handled. What do you do about that? What I do is that I wash my hands frequently. You yeah. know, I, I I tried for a while. Um, it didn't work. You know, getting these Clorox wipes like this <laughs> close by me, Alan. Always always within reach that it really became burdensome to do that. So what I do when I take something, I wash my hands thoroughly, you know, really carefully. And then I'll, you know, take things out of the bag and put it in. Well, you, you are my hero and you're the hero of a lot of people. And I, the last thing I'd like to know from you is also a little personal. How do you manage to keep your ordinary health going? How do you, how do you manage to get enough sleep how do you clear your head to do things that give you strength, like be with your family and that kind of thing? How do you manage? You know, it's, it's, it's not easy, Alan. I, as as I, I had mentioned to you once before, early on, when things were on fire, as it were, in the Northeast with New York, I was getting three to four hours of sleep and I was wearing myself down. You know, I spoke so often and to try to get the message out, I developed a polyp on my vocal cord. And remember the last time you interviewed me, I sounded like a scratchy voice. You might remember that. Well, I have my normal voice back now because yeah. I had to undergo surgery to get the polyp removed. And I'm fine now. And this is my, I joke around. I no longer sound like Marlon Brando with Vito Corleone in The Godfather. I, I sound like, <laughs> I sound like Tony Fauci again. Um, but, but sleep is really, is really the issue that I, I constantly uh, encroach on sleep. 
like today was an amazingly full day. You know, we had a hearing in the morning and hearings are not without stress. You have to be totally alert to answer a question. You're in front of C-SPAN and multiple channels that are that are covering it. Then you finish that, you go to the White House for the task force meeting, you come back here and do something, like I said, that's finally relaxing and enjoyable with, with my friend Alan. But then when I'm finished, I look at my computer and I have like, even though my staff screens it, I have a couple hundred emails oh. and I, I can't let them just sit there. So I got to try and go over them. Sometimes that's 11, sometimes that's one. So the issue is it's, it's sleep is the vulnerability. I've got to make sure that I don't continually itch away at the sleep because that's the only thing there that you can itch away at. Everything else is sort of blocked in. So it's, it's not one, easy. I think it's the one thing we should not copy you on. Which right, is exactly. Please don't do that. You know, sometimes I take a nap while I'm talking. <laughs> One of the more embarrassing things, and it's happened to me, Alan, is that when you're on a conference call that you are leading <laughs> and you fall asleep. That is not good. So listen, I want to give the folks listening a chance to pose some of their questions. Ruth, do you have some questions for us? Oh, absolutely. We have more questions and we'll have time to get through, but let's get through as many as we can. Um, I'll start with this one. If a person has had COVID and has supposed immunity and then encounters the virus again, will that person then be able to transmit the virus to another even though he or she won't get sick themselves? Well, I think you have to um, distinguish between getting infected versus getting sick. So if you are protected because you were infected, let's say Alan and I were just talking about the variable durability of immunity. But let's, for the purpose of clarity, Ruth, let's just say that you're infected, you recover, and now you are immune. If you come into contact with someone, the chances are you're not even going to get infected. Rather than saying, well, I'm going to get infected, but I won't get sick. The chances are, now it is conceivable that you could get virus in your nasopharynx, but that means you're infected again. So the standard definition of being immune means you're immune from getting infected. So I would think that if I were truly immune and I came into contact with someone who's infected, that I would not A, get infected, nor would I transmit it to someone else. Okay, thank you. Is anyone developing a rapid test for COVID that, that um, tests only the infectiousness that day so that you would know immediately whether or not someone had the infection? Yeah, well, that's a really good point, uh, Ruth. And the reason it's a good point, because what we really need to do and are now scaling up to make this available in screening in nursing homes, uh, screening in, in, in schools, is that if you have a test that's highly sensitive and you test someone, you put a little swab in their nose, or now there's some that are saliva tests, you know, the technology gets more sophisticated and more refined as the time goes by, and you are negative, you can say you're negative for that day. Now, the reason 
that we keep saying for that day, because what might happen is that a day and a half, two days later, you may get exposed to someone, one of the asymptomatics that Alan and I were talking about, and then you wind up getting infected. You can't say, oh, well, I was negative two days ago. So being negative two days ago doesn't mean anything if you are in contact with someone subsequent to that test. And that's the reason why the only way that you can know that you're really negative is to get tested essentially every day of your life. And that's not feasible. So what you want to do is you want to find out, for example, what they're doing in colleges now. They're testing the students to go in so that you starting off from square one, that everyone's negative. But knowing that people will inevitably get infected, you do surveillance testing intermittently to make sure there are not subclinical infections there. But short answer to your question is, you're negative today, and it's only for today. Unless you're negative, and then you lock yourself in a room, and you don't see anybody, then three days later, you can say, yeah, I'm negative, right? I remember this was in the news a while back, um, but is there any evidence that blood type can protect you from the severity of COVID illness? You know, uh, the answer is there's no such a thing as total protection. There is a study that shows that people who are type O blood versus type A have a less of a chance of getting infected. But the difference, Ruth, is small enough that I wouldn't have a person who's type O saying, oh, I'm type O, I'm protected, and be careless about it. No, being type O doesn't protect you. It means you have less of a relative risk of getting infected than someone with type A. Is there a way to predict or model which zoonotic diseases will jump to humans? And are there attributes of the viruses that make them more likely to jump? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, if we could model that, we could be more prepared for pandemics. You can anticipate something that might jump out when you see it in an animal. Um, you can look at molecularly whether or not it is getting the capability of binding to human receptors. So let me give you some example. When you have chickens that are infected with the famous bird flu, H5N1, H7N9, that jumped species and had a high degree of morbidity and mortality in people. But it did not develop the capability of efficiently spreading from human to human. If you take that virus and look at it, you could match the molecular structure of the virus with whether or not it binds readily to human receptors. And if it does, then you could say to yourself, be careful, this virus is starting to develop the capability of adapting itself to human. But it isn't just one mutation, it's in the context of a given individual. It's much more complicated than just this mutation versus that mutation. Can I ask you something about that? I don't mean to sound like I'm coming up with horror movie scenarios, but since it jumped from an animal to human, 
can it jump back again? I mean, the scenario that is frightening to me, if it were possible, would be if the virus developed the ability to infect dogs and cats and then infect us in turn. Yeah. You know, theoretically, that is possible, Alan. And we know there are individual reports that are rare of both zoo animals as well as one or two domestic animals that actually got infected likely from their owner who was infected. Mm. There's no indication whatsoever that the virus is being transmitted from an animal to a human. So yes, we know animals can be infected. It's rare, it occurs, but it doesn't seem at all to be part of the dynamics of the outbreak. Good, I'm glad to put that to rest. Another question. We've heard a lot about the race to create a vaccine, but less about finding therapeutics. Is there current research into something analogous to Tamiflu for COVID? Yeah, that's thank you, Ruth, for that question. There's a lot of activity going on for developing therapeutics. There has been success in finding a couple of therapeutics through randomized placebo-controlled trials, which are the gold standard of determining whether something works. One of those drugs is called remdesivir, which is a direct antiviral, and is shown in a randomized controlled trial of over a thousand individuals that when those people are in the hospital and have lung involvement, it diminishes significantly the time to recovery. Another drug, which is a commonly known drug called dexamethasone, it's a glucocorticoid similar to prednisone or prednisolone, that when given to people on ventilators or people who require oxygen, it significantly diminishes the 28-day mortality. Now, those are for advanced disease. Where we're working really hard right now is testing a bunch of drugs early in disease. We know that there's been a lot of talk about hydroxychloroquine. We know from multiple studies that that does not work. We know also that there are suggestions that things like convalescent plasma work. They have an an EUA or emergency use authorization from the FDA, but we're continuing to study that in randomized placebo-controlled trials. The thing that people are excited about, the potential, because in other diseases like Ebola, it's worked, is monoclonal antibodies, which are natural products of the body that are produced in large, specific amounts outside of the body and then can be reinfused into the body. So we have a number of studies as outpatients, inpatients, prophylaxis in nursing homes, and prophylaxis in families in which one person is infected and you want to prevent infection in other members of the family. Bottom line, good therapies now for advanced disease. We need to do a lot more for early disease to prevent people from having to go to the hospital instead of when they're in the hospital, preventing them from getting even more seriously ill. Do the monoclonal antibodies need to come from the individual patient and then back into the patient? Or, or once, it, once they're made, does one size fit all? One size fits all. So let's say, for example, and this as actually happens, let's say that I get infected and I recover. You draw my blood out 
and you look at all the anti, all the B cell clones that I have, and you select for one that's making a very high level of specific neutralizing antibody. You take that, you clone it, you get a monoclonal antibody because that B cell is only making one antibody. When you get what's called polyclonal, you get a whole bunch of B cells making a whole bunch of antibodies, and that's the normal antibody response. But what you want is what's called mono, one, clonal, one clone, making an antibody that's highly specific. Then you could take it out, put it into the appropriate reactors and make tons of it. And you give it passively to anybody, to you, to Ruth or anybody, even though it comes from me, the antibody can be infused into anybody. Okay. Let me see. The use of the pulse oximeter has become more accepted as a very good screening tool for individually asymptomatic people versus the thermometer. Is this true? And if so, should we all be testing ourselves with it? Um, the answer is likely not. I think if you are a person who has documented COVID-19, you're not sick enough to go to the hospital. You're told by your physician, stay home, take care of yourself. If anything goes wrong, give me a call. One of the ways that you can determine if things are going badly is by taking a look at your oxygen saturation. You know, if you're 97, 98, you know, you're good. If it starts to go down, that might alert you to, wait a minute, I better let my physician know and maybe go to the hospital. But to say that's a diagnostic of whether or not you're infected, I wouldn't use that. I would use more symptoms. In other words, if, if you're infected and you're somebody who is without symptoms, the chances are your pulse ox is going to be fine. If it goes down enough to worry about and someone asks you, do you have any symptoms? You'll likely say, I'm a little short of breath when I walk up the stairs. I'm looking at my oximeter with a different eye now. <laughs> <laughs> Since people are now out and about more regularly and coming into contact with others, even while trying to be protected, wearing a mask or what have you, there are certainly situations such as sitting outside at a restaurant that there are going to be other people without masks on. Do you then think it would be worthwhile to have people get tested regularly, say like once a week, um, if they're in contact that way? The, the answer is that, you know, the CDC recommends very clearly that you don't get tested unless you need to get tested. Not everybody who wants to get tested should be testing. But what we're starting to foresee for less of a public health general issue, but more of a trying to feel more comfortable in society, that when we get a test that's specific and sensitive, that is really very cheap, that you could buy in a store easily and not have any machine that you need. And we do have tests like that now, but they're being used specifically to do screening, for example, in nursing homes and in schools and things like that. A day will come very likely where there will be so many tests that people would want to feel more comfortable and say, I want to have, you know, my daughter is getting uh, engaged and I want to have a reception for her. So I'd like to get people to come over and feel more comfortable about coming over. Is there a test that I could just give to them 
that's a five minute to 10 minute test and say, take it, you feel good, come on in. If not, you know, you better go home and see your doctor. I think that we're getting closer to that. Right now, most of the energy is spent in doing the identification, isolation, contact tracing. Pretty soon, they're going to be tests enough that people might be able to do that. I wouldn't say recommend the testing every day, but testing often enough to know that when you're going to go into a certain situation, you could feel comfortable that you are indeed negative. We're not there yet. I'd like to be there, actually. With so many people transmitting the, the infection without symptoms or without symptoms yet, doesn't it seems to me that the more testing, the better. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. At the moment, I can think that a reason to slow down on testing might be that you'll be taking the, te- the available tests away from frontline essential right. workers. Right. And that's the reason why I say right now, we should, and I've said that very, very clearly, and I'll, and I'll say it right here for this particular interaction that we're having. Uh, I think more testing, the better, as opposed mm. to the less testing, the better. That's my opinion. And I think it's based on some pretty good information. Just like you said, Alan, it's, it's true. I mean, particularly if you want to do kinds of screening to determine what the penetrance of infection is in your community. You want to do a lot of testing. That's the only way you know that. Yeah, there's a, there's a principle in dealing with crises that I've heard from some smart people that you can't deal with a crisis, whether it's personal or societal, unless you admit you have a crisis. Right. Up until then, it's just good luck. Exactly. Now, good, good point, Alan. Ruth? Yes. What kind of pandemics can we anticipate in the future? Um, could they be much more dangerous than what we ha- are going through now? And is anything being done right now to address future pandemics? Or are we still, as Alan said, kind of in crisis mode? Well, you know, I hope that there will be, and there should be, and I'll do whatever I can to make that happen, that we have corporate memory about what went right, what went wrong with this outbreak. I must say, Ruth, as someone who has been dealing with outbreaks from things as insidious early on to as extraordinary as it is now, HIV in the beginning when people thought it was just a strange disease among a certain subset of people that turned out to be a global pandemic of historic proportion, to also dealing with things like Ebola and Zika and chikungunya and all things like that, that I have always said, and I think that's the reason why I hope when people hear this, they'll take this seriously. I've always said, when people ask me, because they always do when you're an infectious disease person, they ask you, what's your worst nightmare? What's the thing that keeps you up at night? And my answer has been consistent over decades. And the answer is, it's the emergence of a new virus that jumps species from an animal reservoir that has two simultaneously confluent characteristics. One, it's spread very, very efficiently from human to human. And two, it has a degree of morbidity and mortality either for the population as a whole or for a specific subset. I've said that all along. We've had versions 
of one without the other or one without the other. I'll give you two quick examples. So you have the pre-pandemic bird flu of H5N1, H7N9. It jumps from a chicken to a human. The mortality is like 30, 35, 40%. So if you're unlucky enough to get infected, you're in serious trouble. But it doesn't spread from human to human. So it has a high degree of morbidity and mortality, but it doesn't spread efficiently. Then you have the 2009 H1N1 swine flu, which was the first pandemic of the 21st century. That one had a dramatically efficient spread from human to human. But it was a virus that we characterize in the world of virology as a wimpy virus, because in fact is, even though it spread and it was new, the mortality during that year was even less than an average seasonal flu. So then comes COVID-19 virus called SARS coronavirus 2. And what you have is the worst of both possible worlds. You have a virus that jumps species from an animal reservoir that's spectacularly efficient in spreading from human to human, that has the capability of very serious disease in some people that Alan and I have been talking about, the elderly and those with underlying conditions. Also, an indictment of our society, it also is very, very much disproportionately impacting minority populations, particularly African-Americans, Latinx, American Indians, and Pacific Islanders. So we have right now, we're living through something that is historic. We've not seen anything like this in the arena of a respiratory virus pandemic in 102 years since the pandemic of 1918. Okay, there's a question here. It says, in the past, sewage testing was shown to be very effective in screening large populations for cholera, polio, and um, most recently now, they're starting to do it with COVID. Is this being promoted? Yes, it is. In fact, that is something that is being not only seriously considered, but actually implemented in certain areas like college campuses, where rather than doing so much testing to find out if there is below the radar screen people in the on the campus who are infected, you can just do a PCR on the sewage wastewater. That's such a sensitive amplification test that you could find out if you do have this virus in the vicinity that you're looking at. Sometimes you could do it in nursing homes they're starting to think in terms of finding out in nursing homes by looking at the sewage. Okay, what sources do you suggest using to accurately follow guidelines and COVID trends? Well, I think the CDC um, website is, is really quite good. So I would just go to cdc.gov. And then there are a bunch of coronavirus trackers, the Johns Hopkins University has a good tracker of the number of cases, both in this country as well as globally. But what I go to, you know, as my go-to is just go to cdc.gov and, and that, and or even the WHO website you could, but if you're interested more in what's going on in the United States, just go to Google, cdc.gov, bingo, you're there, and that's it. 
All right. Well, I know that you have someplace you need to be after this program, so I'm going to end with this question. We should end on a high note. What has been the highlight of your career? Talking to Alan. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's the highlight of my career. You can't take my highlights. Well, I, I think there are, well, it, it depends on what you mean by highlight. Sometimes a highlight is in the is in the arena of an awful lot of suffering. I mean, one of the highlights of an experience was early on in the HIV AIDS pandemic was the the privilege of taking care of very, very sick people who were extremely brave at a time when we didn't have anything to offer them. That's, you know, you wouldn't say that's a highlight in that that's something you cherish, but it was an experience that I value to see the courage of the people that you were taking care of. Probably the highlight of something that was accomplished was maybe twofold. One was being the director of the institute that developed most of the drugs in collaboration with the pharmaceutical companies that have now made HIV a manageable disease. Whereas when I was taking care of individuals in the early 80s, it was a virtual death sentence. But the other thing was one that was provided for me by the great insight and wisdom of a United States president. And that is George W. Bush, when he asked me to put together the structure of the PEPFAR program, which is the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which in fact has saved literally millions of lives. And that was a testimony to the president who felt that we had a moral obligation for countries and locations that were not rich like we were to save their lives by providing drugs. And he asked me to be a part of the architect of developing that program. So those are the kind of things that keep my energy going. Well, that's about all the time we do have for tonight. Uh, but on behalf of all of us, we thank you, Dr. Fauci, for carving time out tonight to do this program. We know how busy you are and how taxing your schedule is. You carry an oversized role in communicating with the public about this pandemic, and we are grateful. And I want to thank Alan as well for conducting such an interesting interview and for your continued work in promoting science literacy. Thank you, it and thank you for bringing me together again with my friend, Tony. And get some rest. <laughs> okay, Alan. Thank you, Ruth. This has been a special episode of Clear and Vivid, recorded during a live stream event hosted by Smithsonian Associates, the world's largest museum-based education program. My thanks to Smithsonian Associates and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Aldous Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Clear and Vivid's executive producer is Graham Shedd. Our associate producer is Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. 
Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with my old friend, the wonderful John Lithgow, about his wonderful new book of poems called Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown. I discovered early on, especially with the velocity at which events come rushing by in the Trump administration, that every day that I wrote a poem, the next day it would be ancient history. And I realized, well, why don't you just embrace that? You're telling history. And in its way, it makes a poem even more interesting. You sort of see my naivete at work. John Lithgow and the challenge of writing satire when events themselves can defy belief. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>